So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we know that we join this morning thousands upon thousands who open your word. And we do pray that even for those who hear the preaching of your word this morning, especially at this hour up and down the West Coast, uh, we pray that your uh, will would be made clear. And even for us here this morning in this room, that your truth of, of the gospel and of instruction for us living under the reality of the gospel will be made clear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Every morning, I used to walk into my boss's office and I would look him straight in the eyes and I would say, I quit. And then he would look at me and say, you can't quit. You're fired. And then he would say, but just because you're fired, don't think that you can bail on me. There's still work to be done. Now get to work. And then he would rehire me at the end of the day. And the next morning I'd walk into his office and say, I quit. And this whole process would repeat. And it was a ridiculous form of bantering back and forth, mainly because, I don't know, maybe we were bored, maybe there was just not enough excitement within the office, but we used to joke and banter like this back and forth all the time, and it made the mundane job a little less mundane. And you have to understand that my boss, he was an interesting fellow. He, many of you know, I worked in a retirement community, uh, specifically with transportation, uh, helping uh, elderly folks get to the grocery store and doctor's offices. And I mean, we, we moved something like four to 500 residents every week somewhere. So we, my job was logistics, making sure everybody got there and, and whatnot. And so if a resident walked by, my boss was the kind of boss who liked to tell people that when they walked by, hey, you, you should be proud of us. Our return rate is up to 87%. <laughs> Meaning if we headed out with 22 folks, we came back with 19 on the shuttle. And most people laughed and ha-ha, they knew him well enough. But there was always the few residents who kind of were concerned, like, what happened to the three people who didn't make it back on the shuttle? It was a joy to work there. Um, my boss uh, very much emulated this passage. Um, but I also know from another place that I worked when I was doing apartment management work, I had a boss who was very difficult to work with. Um, he was the kind of boss who you may not see for a week or two or a month or whatever the case was. And you'd be working in the office and all of a sudden you turn and boom, he's there. And he's sitting there with this kind of look on his face 
with a clipboard in hand as he's checking boxes to grade you on everything that you've been doing or not doing correctly. He was never happy. He was grumpy. You, you did not want the wrath of him when he showed up. And, you know, I, I realized how bad the situation was when he had told some friends of mine who also worked under him in a different apartment that, that, that he made it clear that he wanted them out there outside cleaning up the, the sidewalks every morning. I want you out there sweeping and blowing the sidewalks and getting them clear before 8 o'clock. I don't care. He said, if it's Christmas morning, I want you out there cleaning those sidewalks. And he was not joking about that, by the way. He was dead serious. And so when I went in one morning and I told him in the eyes, I quit. I was not joking either. (laughs) Work is a funny thing, isn't it? Because for many of us, when all is said and done, I mean, work will consume something like one quarter to one third of your life. And As you labor and work in various ways, we find ourselves frustrated at many times. We find ourselves in in difficulties where we indeed want to say, I quit, but yet that's not always a possibility, is it? That's not always the option. Or even if it is the option and you find yourself in a different place, oftentimes those same frustrations, those same difficulties follow you to the next workplace, don't they? And so what's the fix? What is the solution to this problem that we face? I think Paul is going to show us. He's going to make it clear to us this morning. Ultimately, you don't work for your boss. The solution is you work for the Lord. And that this will change everything. To get there, Paul, this morning, he gives us these detailed imperatives about living and working and laboring And this all comes in the large section of our lives uh, being lived out in a meaningful way. If we go back to Ephesians chapter 4 at verses 1 through 3, he says, Therefore I, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and with gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so then this walk that Christians are walking as we are eager to maintain this peace with each other, it extended in particular ways that we have been looking at. So, for example, between husbands and wives. So we saw recently also with parents and children, fathers and children. And this morning we'll see too, it doesn't just stop there. It extends to essentially what we'll look at today as employees and employers. So here we'll come ultimately to see the central point. I think Paul is making it clear for us that the just and fair Lord rewards those who labor and manage well. The just and fair Lord rewards those who labor and manage well. And we'll see this in two sections that are very clear. This this outline will be no surprise to you. In verses 5 through 8, we'll see sincere servants. And then we'll conclude with verse 9 as we look at masters that are in the middle. So first, let's take a look, verses 5 through 8, at sincere servants. Here, I do need to say, and you'll need to understand, a few words about slaves and slavery. Because if you have any other Bible translation besides the ESV or the King James Version, your translation will read, likely, they're slaves. And so, All of a sudden, an eyebrow is raised like, wait a sec, slave, slavery? Is Paul okay with this? Is he down with slavery? 
and mostly because what we conjure up in our minds, we begin to think of the American slave trade. This really, though, is not a one-to-one scenario. You need to understand that slavery in the first century, especially in the Greco-Roman world, was rather complex, and it was diverse. Um, It went far beyond mere man-stealing, where you might steal somebody and then force them into labor by physical torture if they don't abide by it. So you need to understand, without going into a lot of lengthy detail that would turn this morning into a history class, that slavery in Paul's day was more akin to what we might think of as indentured servitude. I was trying to think, what you know, what might be the most closely related thing that we might have to this might be something like the military, where you sign up for a particular period of time, yes, like two or four years, and you say that I am, I am, I mean, well, tell me, military guys, I mean, you are property, essentially, of the, of the United States government. And you will work your time there, and then after you're done, you will be rewarded. And if you're, you are wise, depending upon your circumstance, you were able to squirrel away a lot of money because of your living circumstances, or hopefully you take advantage of free, you know, university courses that you, you know, college credits that you're able to get through the military. I think this is more akin, not exactly, but closer to the scenario in which slavery in the first century was experienced. It would be something oftentimes you would voluntarily put yourself into to maybe pay off a debt or to survive for a while knowing that you're going to raise some funds and and get out. You, You might put yourself into a form of slavery and this worked from all the way from like housemaids all the way up to doctors and lawyers would find themselves in this economic system. The statistics are something like 40 to 50% of the population of Rome was in this form of slavery. Something like 30 to 40% on top of that, 50%-ish, were former slaves at one point. So if you're getting the picture, like the vast majority of the citizens of the Greco-Roman world were built into this slavery system. The entire economy hinged on it. Um, everything rose or fall based upon this. And if you were to take away this, this type of, of slavery from the Greco-Roman world, it would not have only been the, the wealthy that were, you know, crushed. It would be also the slaves would go hungry as well. And so I, I do want to be careful here. I don't want to paint too broad of a brush because there were instances where this functioned much in that indentured servitude form, but there were also forms of slavery and, and, and masters who very much mirrored the early American African slave trade so that you ended up with, you know, abuse and man stealing and torture. I mean, there were, but it, but it was broad. It was a broad spectrum of these things. And so, Tim, uh, sorry, Paul, even as he's um, speaking to, to Timothy, as he writes Timothy in 1 Timothy, he makes it clear that that form of slavery, he wants to make it clear there, is, is sin. Where you enslave man-stealing somebody is sin. It's actually right up there with murder and sexual immorality in the list that he mentions in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So again, to clarify and just to summarize this before we move on, slavery in the first century Ephesus was complex and diverse. It was how the economy of the Greco-Roman world functioned. And within this imperfect and complex system, Paul instructs bondservants in verse 5. You'll see here of chapter 6, verse 5, he says, Bondservants, 
Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now, when I backed up and I, th- I asked myself, what did I expect Paul to say here? If I just asked the question, what was it I, I would expect somebody of a religious nature, like a rabbi or a teacher, to tell slaves? He would say this, do, do the right thing. Do what you're told. You know, your boss tells you to do something, just do it. Do the right thing. Don't lie. Don't, when his back's turned, don't, don't go around him and do something else. Just do the right thing. But interestingly here, not only is Paul including that sort of an idea, but he actually says the obedience that we're supposed to do is not just merely outward external obedience. In other words, the Lord's not looking for you just, oh great, you just did what you were asked to do. But actually, there's more importantly, what's going on right here. So he says, with a sincere heart, with a sincere heart, from the heart, do this work. And this means we're not only commanded to work hard doing the right thing, but you and I are commanded to desire working well, essentially. Is it not true, you parents, when you have children and you say, I need you to do this chore. On one hand, they could do the chore with the, oh, I don't really, you know I hate doing that chore. I don't like doing it at all. And the whole time they're doing it, they're not really doing the greatest job and they're miserable about it. And you know, okay, they're doing the chore, but the heart is not in it at all. There is something radically different about a person who really gets into the work that needs to be done. If your child really suddenly is working alongside you and suddenly enjoys the fruit of this labor, well, then it's a totally different scenario. The same work's being done, but one with a sincere heart that actually changes the whole picture. And it, the moment the child gets into that mode, it no longer really feels like work to us. I believe this is akin to the type of heart and the effort that Paul is calling us towards in our labor and in our workplaces. We are to do this work with a sincere heart so that we do not aim at merely just pleasing people. The Christian Standard Bible reads this interestingly there at verse 6 where it adds on to this saying, Don't do only this work while being watched in order to please men, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. When your boss's back is turned, we work hard. And when they are present, we work equally as hard. Because ultimately, we don't live and die on the hill of whether or not the manager over us is pleased and whether the job is well done to their satisfaction. But ultimately, we're looking to please the Lord who's above our manager. This is in line within what Paul says here at verse 7 of chapter 6, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. And almost each of these three verses, he's making it clear. This is to the Lord, to Christ, to the Lord, to Christ. He wants us to get it. Our work and service then is not to please merely please man, but to please ultimately the Lord. And so then we really and truly are called to work and serve as those who are doing it for Jesus, for Christ. But John Stott actually brings this home a little bit more here where he says, it is possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if she is cooking it for Jesus Christ. It is possible for you to spring clean the house as if Jesus were going to be the honored guest. It is possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat patients, for nurses to care for them, for shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. 
And perhaps I can add on the myriad of ways I could think of even in our own church as we labor to care for one another here. That we do so not just to care for this person, but ultimately see we're caring for someone above them. We're caring and doing it as unto the Lord. Yes, this also includes those of us here who are retired. I hope you see that. This entire passage does not discount you. I know so many of you folks here who are retired or mostly retired have told me the way this was supposed to work was goodbye tension, hello pension. (laughs) Only to realize that when you've officially retired, it was hello pension, why am I still dealing with this tension? You, You know, over time, What happens in our lives is the to-do list just keeps building up. But when you retire, it's like, oh, now you finally get to tend to all those projects around the home that never really got done. Or new problems and new challenges present themselves from families to uh, your living situation to other things the Lord has called you to in a myriad of ways. No one ever really retires, do they? And... And so this is why all of this that I'm covering this morning, I just want you to know, lands squarely in all of our laps. Nobody gets to say, I'm so glad those days of laboring are over. They're just not. And so then from the children who work in the home doing chores to the parents who are rushing off to work, uh, to the mothers who are changing diapers, to retired folks who are busy working within the church or with their grandchildren, to all of you, I say, work well as unto the Lord. Work as if the Lord were the recipient of the meal that you are cooking today, this night, or the table that you might bust tomorrow. Because you were created to work. Work is what we do. (laughs) Remember, this was not written to us, but it was written for us. This was to the Ephesians, but it's actually for our benefit to understand. And even though these economies might be different, there might be differences here. There are so many things that are are parallel that just never really change. And so for those of you here who are wrestling with Christianity, for those of you who wonder, I wonder if this is really all true. I just want you to maybe sit back this Sunday and just consider one thing with me for a minute. Just think through and ask yourself this one question. In relation to working, do you ever get a sense when you work, when you're tackling a a job, when you're maybe even doing something around the home or the garden, do you ever have an honest moment where you come to really appreciate the job well done at the end of the day? Do you ever have that sort of satisfaction that comes from finishing the construction site? Ah, we finally finished this. We're getting to move on to something else and we get to kind of admire our work. Do you ever... Have that sense of completedness when finally, even though now it's almost fall, you got the spring cleaning done around the home. Or the garden is finally, you know, set up and, and yes, this year you finally were able to harvest a few mealy tomatoes, but you got them. Do you ever have that sort of satisfaction that comes upon you? Your efforts, you know, maybe you work with patience and your efforts in really trying to care for this person finally paid off and they're getting the relief and saying it was due because of your work, your labor. Do you ever relish in that? Do you ever sit back and say, I enjoy the work of my hands? And if you do, where do you think that comes from? Do you remember how our Bibles open? There was this particular figure who hovered over the waters and for six days he got to work 
and he created and he built and he made. And it was a beautiful thing when he was done. And on the seventh day, he rested. And he kind of said, this is, I really enjoyed this work of my hands. And even Adam and Eve, when they were there in the garden, what were they doing? Before sin entered the world, they were busy working. They were tending the garden. They were making this garden and the boundaries of it expand. And they must have sat back and relished in the work of their hands. Church, we were created to work. We are created to relish in the good work of our hands. Let us do that. It's only once sin enters the world that work comes with thorns. You see Adam and Eve prior, they're picking berries. They're picking berries. They're putting them in bowls. And then they're eating them until their belly's full. It's only once sin enters the world that now we have to, we're still called to work and labor, but it comes with thorns, doesn't it? We get scratched now as you and I do this work. And so then, even though we get to this point, we ask, what do we do? What do we do if our manager, our boss, or our supervisor doesn't see our efforts? What do we do if our job is very frustrating and difficult? What do we do? Do we kick back and grumble with our fellow coworkers? No. Look at verse 8 here where Paul says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. And so, if you see what Paul's saying here, he is saying, whether you're a bond servant serving in a position you are kind of stuck in, or whether you're free, you can get up and move around and change jobs, change locations. It doesn't matter. Whatever work you're doing, and we all have to labor, we're doing it knowing there is a reward to come. Here, the reward is not spelled out. You ask, reward? What reward? Tell me, Paul. It's not here. If you read enough of Paul's letters... There's certain language that you start getting embedded in you. You start understanding that when Paul talks about receiving from the Lord for our good deeds, it's actually a common enough type of, of language that Paul uses. So, for example, I was thinking of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And then I recognize there is a parallel passage um, in Colossians, uh, one, of, one of the th- things that most scholars believe is that Ephesians and Colossians are, are two books that kind of mirror each other. They were likely written around uh, the same moment of time. And Paul oftentimes is talking and traveling through the same types of thinking and thoughts. And in the parallel passage in Colossians, Paul makes it clear. This reward is an inheritance. And in the moment you start talking about inheritance language, it becomes very clear to us the reward in this case is eternal life. Um, This is the very thing that we recognize that whatever good we're doing, I may never see what you're doing. The pastor may never notice the good that you're doing in this church behind the scenes. The elders may never see the good that you're doing in your family when no one else is looking. Your fellow employees and the people working under you and your manager and your boss and your workplace may never notice the good that you do. But the Lord does, and he will reward you for your honest, good work. As you trust in faith in him, there is a reward coming. And we need to remind ourselves of that when work gets rather mundane. Tim Keller, he has this excellent 
uh, illustration where he talks about these two factory workers who show up in a widget factory. You all know what widgets are, where, where you kind of take one thing and another thing, you kind of connect them and throw them in the box, and the assembly line comes down, you grab the next two things, connect, throw them in the box. He says this, these two workers in, in the factory of making widgets, he says if you take one and you tell them, hey, you know what, I'm going to pay you minimum wage. I need you to work here eight hours a day. You're going to show up. You're going to work hard. Just work your time through, and then you know we'll get you minimum wage, and you're going to be with us for a year. You tell another man, you say, okay, we're not going to pay you anything, and we expect you to show up and work here hard every day for eight hours. We're going to pay you nothing, but at the end of a year, we will give you a couple million dollars. He says, what are the working conditions then like for these two men? Ah, it's very simple. You go to the first man, and it's like day one. He shows up and click, click, all right, click, click, okay, click. And after a week, he he is done. He's miserable. He'd rather have a sharp stick in the eye than show back up to this factory making widgets, okay? And then he says, go to the second room with the man who's been promised the millions of dollars, but nothing for now. What, what is the, what is it like for that man? Every day he saunters in. I can't wait to get to work today. He is blessed. He's whistling. He has a song in his heart. He is exuberantly happy every day. Why? Because he knows what's coming at the end. And so Christian, you too need to remember whether it's seen, whether you're rewarded for it now or not, the Lord knows. The Lord sees, and he will reward. And he's not one good thing that you've done is going to go unrewarded or unnoticed by your master, your Lord. And so now you see the just and fair Lord rewards those who labor well. But also there's one other piece to this. The just and fair Lord rewards those who labor and manage well. And so we'll look briefly at this final but important verse, verse 9. Just as we saw earlier, we had a couple verses instructing children and then a single, you know, verse towards fathers. So too here we have several verses instructing, you know, employees, these workers, these bond servants, and now we get a single verse that instructs the masters. So verse 9. Masters. Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So here Christian masters are reminded that you may be the boss of some. You may have some employees under you, but you are not the boss of Jesus. Jesus is Lord and master over you masters. And he will not look more favorably upon you for being in a higher position. And therefore, all will eventually bow the knee to him. Now, earthly, we think of things in these terms because we, we, we see here's an, a boss, a manager, and here's an employee. And, and it's very easy for those of us who rise to a position of a manager to think, aha, I've arrived. I'm above these people. I can have control. I can tell them what's up. And we remember this gap, this distance, this height. But you know what happens the further up you go? The further up you go, this gap starts looking more and more and more and more like nothing. And I think Paul's reminding them, you may think that you're above them and control them and, and, and threaten them, but, but recognize from the Lord's vantage point, you're all on an equal plane and he's going to judge each one of you according to your sincere heart. That's why he says, likewise, I think that's sweeping up a sincere heart of managing and caring for them. 
I think this is why we, we want to, as managers, as bosses, foster an environment where it's a joy to work. I think of my boss I opened up with who fired me every day and, yes, rehired me at the end of the day. But it was a joy to work there. So just as Jesus has rights over us as his people, yet he cares tremendously providing for us, teaching us, and having a sincere heart towards us, so too bosses and masters are to remember there is no partiality with the jo- with the Lord. He is just and he is faithful. He's the Lord, both of the slave and of the free, both of the master and of the servant. He is the one that to whom everyone will be accountable. And this is why Paul then he wants to, as he uh, mentions in Philemon, he wants to send Onesimus, who was a slave, back to the master, the slave owner uh, of Philemon. But he re- encourages him to receive him back as a brother, not as a slave. He says, receive him back as a brother in Christ. And so that would leave no room for threatening, for posturing, for ridiculous little ways of reminding others that you are somehow superior or over them. So just as Paul then is instructing bondservants and masters, each in relation to the Lord, it is my belief, as we venture to live in a countercultural affront to the ways that the world has shown us, we will only be as effective in this endeavor to live differently within our workplaces or in our church or in our homes to, to the degree that we have the true heart change. Because all of this comes back to that idea of a sincere heart. When Paul instructs us to have a sincere heart in our work and efforts and to manage our staff or employees well, we do so remembering the Lord is our master. This only works to the degree that you and I are actually willing to be introduced and really have a grasp and an understanding of the true servant and the true master. The real slave, the real master, So let me just briefly begin here by bringing to mind Isaiah chapter 9, where you will see this master. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of his increase uh, of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from the, this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this, he says. Now, whoever this son is, you and I should recognize he's more powerful and a greater ruler than any boss we've ever had. Because it begins with this, this one that's mentioned in Isaiah 9. He's a prince. And then it finally turns to, he's a king. And then it finally brings us to this point where you see, no, 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 no. He's God himself. I mean, this is a sovereign ruler. You need to know. And then later we read of a different position, a different person. We read of Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faint, faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So then we're beginning to hear about this servant, this slave as it were, who seems to also be one who's bringing forth justice. And it's only when you and I begin to see the sovereign master, the Lord, 
is the humble servant and that these are coming together in the same picture. It's clear that these two come together and land on Jesus Christ. And this is where we think of Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, a sovereign king, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a, you know the word, servant. Same Greek word, slave, bondservant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus became, friends, the suffering servant who was obedient to the point of death. You and I, we often say things like, Jesus is Lord and Savior. I hope you would see that that's actually shorthand for saying Jesus is the sovereign master. He's the Lord. And by saying Savior, he's the bondservant, the, the slave, the one who gave himself up for us. And when our hearts really feel the weight of that, that's when you and I actually begin to manage well, to work well. When we really comprehend what Christ has done for us, we are then like the, the man who walked into the widget factory knowing in the end we will be repaid millions and millions. And we work with a song in our hearts. It actually changes Monday morning. And so if you struggle with this, you need to view him on the cross as the servant. If you struggle with this, you need to view him as the ruling king, the Lord of all. And you need to hear the words from Mark chapter 10 where he says, "You." this is Jesus speaking, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all for even The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Church family, this is good news. It's good news for us this morning. The just and fair Lord rewards those who labor and manage well. And so, would you pray with me? Lord, as we meditate on the way that you have served We ask that your spirit would grant us a sincere heart. And Lord, whether we are in the home or the workplace or within the duties in the church, we pray that you would give us your spirit to help us work always, not as those who are trying to merely please men, but those who desire to please you and honor you through the work of our fingers. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.